Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing a mix of career content, coaching, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Michelle Perchuk, who I met through LinkedIn last year. Michelle is an ICF certified leadership, career, and business coach, as well as an author and speaker. She is the owner of MTV Coaching, She is also a member of the Forbes Coaches Council and an adjunct professor at Farley Dickinson University. She has a handful of other side gigs underway as well, including being an influencer on Instagram, and we'll cover that in our discussion. Michelle began her career in the staffing industry with early roles at Agilon and Manpower. She later branched out on her own, starting her own search firm, NPD Global, which she ran until 2017. At that point, she transitioned to her current focus on executive coaching. Michelle is the author of Swimming in the Talent Pool, which focuses on recruiting in the tech industry, and she's developed an online course called The Da Vinci Career Coach, which focuses on how the world's great artists can provide lessons for people looking for their next role. Michelle earned her bachelor's degree from New York University's Steinhardt School of Human Development. She's completed the Leadership for High Potentials training at New York University's Stern School of Business and a professional certification from Rutgers University in Leadership Coaching for Organizational Performance. She is accredited by the International Coaching Federation, which is arguably the gold standard in coaching certification programs. She and her family live in the New York City area. She enjoys hiking, nature, and travel. Michelle, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, JR. So let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up and what was your first paid job? Okay. So I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and my first job was actually selling in a fashion boutique. I was a high schooler and I had to muster up enough courage to ask this glamorous woman that was the owner to give me a part-time job. And she did. That's good. I'm sure once you got in there, you probably ran with it and did great, right? I did. I did. I really enjoyed working with women who were middle-aged at that time compared to my age, because I was 15. And I enjoyed building the relationships. I enjoyed showing them the latest products. I enjoyed actually making them feel good about themselves. Yeah. And offering them something that maybe they did not see themselves. Did that shape what you thought about doing when you went off to school? You know what? I was not at that place where I could connect my core values Mm. and evaluate my competencies. I knew I enjoyed working with people. I was always a people person. But once again, I didn't have the mindset to start asking myself those types of questions and reflect on my natural tendencies. What about fashion? Was that the beginning of your interest in fashion? Yeah, yeah. I always was the uh, different looking executive in the room, always in bright colors, always having people coming up to me asking me, where did you get that? So I think that's another thing that I was born with. 
so then you went to New York University, you went to the Steinhardt School of Human Development. How did you zero in on NYU and why that is a particular program? So I zeroed in on NYU because it had a fantastic reputation and I was guided by a really talented guidance counselor at my high school. I was in high school for high potential, talented kids. And she felt that that was a really great match for me. There was also a financial aspect to my education. So they actually granted me a full scholarship. Wow. So I chose that school as an inner city kid. The communication program sounded phenomenal because I knew that communication was the basic of all human interaction. And I knew it was a great starting point no matter what profession I would actually choose to go after at that point. I knew that interpersonal communication was the baseline for anything that I would do after graduating college. Did you have a sense of what you wanted to do at that point? I did. I was always fascinated with, once again, product, packaging, promotion. So it was really a natural progression being in the School of Human Development, the communication program. There were many classes I was exposed to in PR, in advertising, in creative writing. So I thought that that's the path that I wanted to take. How did you then end up, you did a couple of stints working for staffing firms, Agilon and Manpower. So how did that play out for you? So there was a small stepping stone in between my degree and getting into uh, tech staffing. My first job out of college was actually organizing conferences for CIOs with major sponsors like Lotus and Microsoft. I mean, Lotus is an ancient word nobody remembers anymore. But I was responsible for organizing those events and selling it to C-suite executives. And that's where, by chance, I met two executives from Time Magazine who said to me, why do you want to just sell tickets to a conference? Why don't you get into consulting? And the first thing that I said was like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to be a consultant. I need benefits. So that's a funny story I always tell. But they opened up my eyes, those two young men in place of their boss, opened up my eyes to the world of technology staffing, staff augmentation, and talent acquisition. And then from that point on, I went to Agilon, was my first job, and then Comsyst, which was acquired by Manpower. Yeah. When you got in there, what did you find that you liked and didn't like about being in that space? So I loved the matchmaking aspect of it. Yeah. I loved meeting with the business and meeting with my team, presenting the best possible candidates, and then actually coaching the candidate and coaching the hiring manager. So they would meet in the middle and there would be a transaction. I really enjoyed it. At one point, it was like challenge. I would put bets against my own performance and really question if the candidate is going to get an offer or not. Yeah. So I really enjoyed the human interaction. What I didn't like is that I didn't understand the technology, the nuts and bolts. And I always felt that I lacked that. But if I would understand it to such a degree, then I would probably be a developer or an architect. So I always struggled with that, that I really, at times, did not understand what my clients did on a Mm day-to-day basis. Yeah, which always makes it a little bit tougher. I think between my freshman and sophomore years of college, I actually temped for manpower all summer. I worked for a hospital. I worked for a car dealer. I worked for a company that made extruded plastic equipment, like all sorts of random things. So doing data entry, nothing all that glamorous, but at least it was work. Sure, sure. They're a giant in that space. 
No, well, they're huge. I mean, they were huge back then. I think I may have actually temp for them in one other firm. I just can't remember the other firm's name at this point, but there were sort of two options where I grew up in Ohio and I went to both of them and put my name in and got hired pretty quickly. So what led you then to go out and start your own search firm? Well, it was a combination of events. So we had the mortgage correction, the kind of the downfall of the financial yeah. sector in New York, a latter part of 2008 and then into 2009. Many executives were immediately lost their livelihood. Many executives took this time to reflect and ponder if this is where I want to be. I was finan- in the, uh, staffing for the financial sector being based in New York City. So I was one of those executives that had to ask myself, what do I want to do from this point on? Yeah. And I realized that I provided a great service and I had great relationships with my clients. And I really liked the process of giving people a happier livelihood and allowing them to find career happiness. And I wanted to continue doing that, but I wanted to continue doing it in a lighter way, not in a very corporate, huge overhead way. Mm. And I decided to open up a boutique firm, which many of my clients became creative and figured out how they could follow me and give me the business. I do pride myself that New York Stock Exchange was one of my best clients. They yeah. the vendor list after being in business for one year. And I wind up having a really amazing relationship with them. I'm very, very grateful for that. Yeah. I mean, when you get one or two of those anchor clients early in your small business life, it can make a huge difference. So it's great that you had that. And you know, I mean, look, search world is one of those things. It's very people driven. I don't need to tell you that. And so people will follow the recruiters that they like working with as people because they like their network, they like their style. And so you you obviously benefited from that as you made that transition. Absolutely. I also had a great reputation for being that executive that did the due diligence. Yeah. They knew that if I presented them with two candidates, they knew that they would hire one of them because I performed the due diligence. I coached those candidates. I checked their references. I made sure that they were not only a fit for the technical skills, but also a culture fit, which very often is a huge deal, whether the executive will stick or will wind up leaving after the first year. Yeah. Culture fit definitely matters. I mean, it's two-way street, right? Again, you know that as well as anybody. How was your entrepreneurial journey itself? I loved it. I think I worked harder, but I was happy doing it. Yeah. Because it's for you. Yeah. Well, not only that, my years in corporate, there were moments that I experienced a lot of toxicity, especially Mm. during the time of mergers. I went through eight mergers in my corporate career and people don't always show up in a positive light when their job is in danger or new management is coming in. So I really enjoyed being my own boss and running my own company because I treated my employees very respectfully. And I knew that they wanted to work for me because they wanted to, not because they had to. Yeah. How many employees did you have? My maximum was 37. Wow. Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you. It was a combination of my staff, the shared services, and then the consultant who actually wanted to be employed by us. These were the technical experts that really wanted to be employed by the company and go from project to project. 
I'll, I'll ask you a question. I asked one of my other guests recently, who's also in search, what advice would you give people? I mean, it's a world that's confusing to people from the outside often. And what advice would you give people in terms of how best to get on the radar of search firms, how best to interact with them? Basically, do your due diligence, speak to your colleagues, speak to your supervisors, and really get recommended to a search firm that has a great reputation. Yeah, I have never seen such growth as the growth that happened in the search and in the staffing space while I've been in the business. I think it's uh, close to 75,000 firms right now in the US, if not more. Wow. And many of them are not very ethical. Many of them will do tricky things. Mm. And you wouldn't know that as a candidate, especially if they reach out to you either from the job boards or on LinkedIn. And that's why I really recommend, that's the biggest advice that I could give to people who are in a job search. You need to work with the good recruiters. Yeah, You really need to understand their function as well, that they're out there to make a fee on you. Not as much as where your career is going. They're there to make a fee. So job seekers need to understand that and really be transparent about it. Yeah. I mean, presumably if they're overly pushing a candidate that isn't really the right fit for the company, sooner or later, that's going to catch up with them. True. True. But there's a lot of automation in recruiting right now where resumes get sent in, not always speaking to the candidates. And then you find out that you were represented by a company that you never spoke to. In the age of applicant tracking system, ATSs, where most five Fortune 5000 companies have, it's really important who owns the candidate. It's no longer whose name is in the Rolodex. So that's why I really urge people who are in a job search, ask around, talk to your friends, talk to people you knew from grad school and see who they recommend. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, it's a very 75,000 firms, presumably very, very large percentage of them are I'll say sole proprietorships are small firms, right? Smaller than your firm was at its peak. And you've got to find the people who do searches in your function or your industry. Otherwise, it's kind of a waste of time, right? You've got to find that the right people. Absolutely. Absolutely. How did you find being the leader of those 37 people? What was your leadership style? And how did you approach your own culture when you had the ability to create it yourself? So I always have believed in an open door policy. And now that it's a couple of years after I sold that company, I realized that maybe it was open a little bit too much. I really sat with my team. I really made them feel like I was one of them. And when it came to making tough decisions, that actually worked against me. Yeah. Because they looked at me as a friend. They looked at me as someone that they could share things with. But when I had to make choices that were for the business, they sometimes took it personally. And I often regret that I was not mature enough to bring in a coach that would work with certain individuals in my organization that would work with me so that we can get rid of those elements and really all act towards the benefit of the company. Very few people think of the company when it comes to some kind of a decision in the workforce. Yeah. Even myself as the owner, I really thought of me a lot more often than the company. And yeah, I think that's that, natural. Yeah. But I think that the mindset has to be different. If all employees and the leader are in one company, they have to think as though the company is an entity of its own. And is it for the good of the company? Taking the personal out of it. 
I could speak that way now because I'm a coach and I have so many tools on my belt, but I think that was a mistake that I made in my leadership style. Look, I think it's especially hard in a small company. Everybody in those situations, to some extent, values the intimacy of those situations, right? And they work really well or they don't work well, depending on the people, because there aren't a lot of them. And so it makes it a much different experience than being in a bigger company where everybody understands that there's a kind of a corporate line, right? So it's look, I can appreciate that that was a difficult line for you to find, particularly in a small business, relatively small business that you were running yourself. How did you decide to sell the business ultimately? Well, it was a combination of things. I was constantly approached from my friendly competitors. Yeah. But I went to, and I had a feeling that I wouldn't be able to scale as much as I wanted to because I needed additional investments. I kind of made a soft decision that something was going to change. I conducted a slew of interviews of C-suite executives, which I actually did thanks to LinkedIn. Mm. I reached out to around 600 executives and conducted 30-something interviews, specifically CIOs, on the question of where did they think the recruiting industry was going to go and how much will they value recruiting firms at headhunters over the next five years? Yeah. What did you hear? And based on what they said, I made a decision to sell. The consensus was that headhunters, specialty firms will always be needed, but the mass market was going the automation route. And I knew that if I wanted to run as fast as my competitors, I needed to invest into an army of recruiters, the staff that would support the business that would come in from some of our mega customers. I knew we wouldn't be able to do it manually. Yeah. And you you mentioned applicant tracking systems earlier. I mean, there's been a bit of backlash over the last few years, just in terms of concerns about the bias that they might be introducing relative to bringing in a diverse candidate pool. Yeah. I so, yeah, I mean, I don't know whether that automation trend continues or whether it goes back to being a bit more personalized. Like any industry, every industry is always evolving. I knew the pros and cons of an applicant tracking system. I knew it very well. And I know many companies still use that formula. And that's why in my coaching practice, it's extremely valuable to my clients that I was that ex-recruiter. I could really tell them how companies select and how it works, where the everyday person doesn't really know. Yeah. To get back to those interviews that I conducted, the knowledge was so important and the content was so rich from those interviews. I interviewed one of the divisional CIOs of AIG. I interviewed the CIO of New York Times and the CIO of the city of Palo Alto. And that information, I had a duty as a human being to share with the world. And that was the beginnings of how I published my book, Swimming in the Talent Pool. How was the writing process for you when you got to that point? Well, I kind of had all the meat already. I just kind of needed to uh, dress it up a little bit. I enjoyed it very much. I enjoyed a writing schedule. I enjoyed having editorial coach who helped me make the chapters a certain length and then to format it. I self-published the book. So it was a little cumbersome to kind of deal with Amazon, but I loved that process. I loved it. And it really elevated me to a subject matter expert in my field. Once the book was out, what did you do to continue to market it and to find other ways to monetize the value that you were getting from it? 
So the purpose of publishing the book was really not so much monetizing it. It mm-hmm. was to establish me as a subject matter expert. It was a door opener. Yeah. And it did completed that task by 10x. Even now in my coaching practice, I gift the book very often. It's selling because of the Instagram following. Whenever someone starts following me on Instagram, they quickly discover that I have a book and they buy it. So there's a trickling of funds that way. But really, it's the knowledge that's in the book during the time, not that I want to get political, but during the time that I completed the book, it was still the Obama administration. Right. And a chapter actually speaks about all the STEM programs that President Obama initiated. Right. And then by the time the book kind of started getting popular out there, we had a different administration. And one of the first things that that administration did was they chucked all those programs. So I'm very happy that that book exists and it shows in real time how important those STEM programs are because those STEM programs are the graduates of those programs are our developers and our technology talent today. Yeah. And you talked about helping women going back to when you were working in that boutique store as a teenager. STEM for women is especially a challenge in terms of getting girls, young women into those programs. Absolutely. I'm hoping that's going to change because of the conversation that we're having on diversity, part of that conversation. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's part of my job includes running an IT organization and it's hard to find. You certainly don't find anything close to 50-50 in the candidate pool. And I hope that starts to change over time because it would be better for everybody if that were the case. Absolutely. So you sold your business back in 2017. Did you know that you wanted to transition into coaching then or did you go through some sort of evaluation period? I had an evaluation period that I kind of got thrown into. So it's a very close-knit community, especially New York and New Jersey in the staffing world. So very quickly, people knew I was available and I got a very interesting proposition from another boutique firm to come in and fix their problems, meaning retrain their sales staff, look at their processes for recruiting, help them get some business. And I realized that I did a lot of coaching during that time, the nine a month project. And by month six, I knew what I was doing. I was coaching. So once again, I went and I spoke to some of my friends in the business and really shared my experience with them. And one of my friends slash clients said to me, look, there is a lot of dialogue going on right now, especially in the corporate world about executive coaching and leadership coaching. And she said to me, I think that you would be a natural. So it wasn't my first business that I was putting together. I knew that I needed to get certified. I was going to do it right. I went back to school, got certified at an amazing program at Rutgers University and then passed all of my exams for ICF, which is the International Coaching Federation. And I was ready. I was ready. So I'm very proud of that journey. And I'm extremely happy with what I do. So talk about your coaching practice today. I know you do a mix of career coaching, leadership coaching, business coaching. So what does your practice mix look like? What industries, what level of people that you tend to work with? What types of situations? I'll Mm -hmm. let you describe it in your own words. Sure, sure. So those three things are very distinct, but they meet at a pinnacle. And that pinnacle is career vision. So that is where I start with 
any executive that I work with, I tend to be a lot more successful with seasoned professionals. So mid-management, MD, VP level, depending on the industry. The industry doesn't matter to me. I gravitate towards tech and finance because that is my background. But through my coaching endeavors, I've been able to learn so much about healthcare, advertising, social media, Mm. you name it. My knowledge base is just growing. So I start with understanding what an individual's career vision is. What do they envision for themselves? And then we start building their vision, whether it's through the career angle, through the leadership angle, or through the business angle, whether they want a new job, what do they need to do in order to get a new position of interest that's more challenging, or they're doing a career pivot or it's a second career. If it's in the leadership pillar, then it's all about promotion and being recognized in your existing organization. Right. How do you start planning your career progression at your company and in your lane, in your profession? Or when it comes to business coaching, it's usually someone that is doing a career pivot and they are getting out of one industry and starting a business. I have had a tremendous success with executives that take packages, especially during the pandemic, and would go into a franchise business. Hmm. There's a lot of coaching in that sector because C-suite executives, they lead, but they always get things done for them. You have an assistant, you have project manager, you have a variety of people that are supporting you. When you go into a business, you're it until you can afford to bring in. And there's a lot of coaching that happens before someone decides to sign the contract to become a franchise owner. Yeah. And as you say, I mean, being a business owner, franchisee or otherwise, it's very different than being in a big company where you've got staff doing all these different things. So that's a bit of a rude awakening for a lot of people when they venture out on their own. Yes. I know you've coached literally thousands of people. Are there a few common themes that are the ones that are most prevalent that you hear about and have those changed over the last five years that you've been doing this? So things really changed over the pandemic months because people started realizing that they're not fulfilled with Mm. what they're doing. They may be great at their job. They may be making a phenomenal living, but they're not fulfilled. Something is missing. And when I start asking them these questions they really have a rude awakening and they get stuck. They don't know what to do. It doesn't matter what level the individual, what role the individual has in their professional life. They all need the same kind of handholding. Yeah. So that they could give themselves permission to experiment, to ask the questions. I am amazed. I see incredible resumes. One of the first things that I do when I meet a new client is I ask to see their resume. Sure. I'm amazed that people want a certain role, but actually nothing in their resume speaks to that role, nor does the resume have an objective. So how would a potential employer consider them for this role when it's not even clear from the resume for what they want? And this is astounding. I had a conversation with a chief risk officer for a mid-sized bank. And when I told him this, He needed to leave the meeting. He's like, I need to think about this. It's interesting. Now you've got people don't write cover letters like they used to when they would mail a resume into a company. The cover letter can do the stitching together, right? How do I connect the opportunity that you're hiring for with my background? So it doesn't 
rely so much on a bulleted form that typically comes in a resume. And a lot of people, I don't know what your view is. I would be curious to get your view. I feel like people who don't do cover letters or cover emails or whatever they are, are kind of missing an opportunity to help the hiring company and manager connect those dots. I agree to an extent on that. I feel that not sending a cover letter is a mistake because a resume is two, two and a half pages and it doesn't really speak to the job description. So you Mm. do need kind of that middleware that connects the resume to the job description. Now, see, you're using a tech term there, Michelle. You did pick up some of this over the years. Yes, I did. Thank you for recognizing that. So I feel that a lot of people get caught up in this writing. I'm going to write an amazing cover letter. They're going to hire me based on my cover letter. And they rely on the resume and the cover letter almost as a crutch to do the work for them. One of the first things that I talk to my clients about is reversing that. Mm. Instead of sending the resume and the cover letter and praying that it's going to do the job, have the conversation first and then send the cover letter and the resume because at that point, it comes alive. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I think the first thing I tell everybody is don't just apply online, like work your network. Yes. And it's amazing. I mean, the numbers have shown for forever that networks get you jobs. And yet a lot of people still try the old school approach. They feel like they're not following the rules if they call the hiring manager directly. It's To me, that's a fallacy. Look, we live in a society where we want instant gratification. And for Mm -hmm. certain jobs, it works. You apply, you get a call back. But the professionals I work with, sending a resume blindly does not work. So why would you want to spend energy on something where the yield is so low? But many people don't have the courage. They don't have the confidence. And most of all, they don't have the tools to create a story about their professional life. They don't communicate it clearly. This is one of the major things that I do. I help people create a vocabulary almost about Mm. themselves in a one minute commercial. I call it the three chapters of my life, beginning where you are now and where you're going, which communicates clearly to whoever you're talking to. What is it that you want? Well, having that elevator pitch right? I mean, that's essentially, yes. and having that elevator pitch represent your personal brand or whatever you want to call it. I mean, that's ultimately what you're helping your clients do as you describe it. Absolutely. And you're showing right off the bat that you bring value. Also, Definitely. many people don't know how to network effectively. They will request a virtual coffee and then they'll spend 30 minutes talking about themselves. That's not something that I endorse. I always recommend when you schedule a virtual coffee, you do the introductions or you just catch up over five minutes, but then actually turn the attention to who you're talking to. Even though you're the one that needs the job, still show them the attention, see what's happening with them. And when you feel that there is a place where you could interject your expertise, then go for it. Yeah. Or just asking questions, right? I mean, the candidate asking questions can be a huge differentiator in terms of separating them from the pack because it shows that they prepped and they came prepared and they're thoughtful about what they're thinking about. They're thoughtful about what they want to know about your company. Yeah. And, you know, asking questions, thank you for bringing that up, is really brilliant because it really comes down to asking just a couple of simple questions. Yeah. Maybe seven words long. How can I help you? And 
what does success look like for someone in this role? Yeah. Those two questions. I mean, I've had my clients ask those questions and upper management would say, thank you so much for saying that Yeah. because no one has really asked us, what do we need? And we're the ones who are hiring. Yeah. So talk yeah, about I, game changer in that question. Yeah, absolutely. And those two questions, they're generic, right? They're not even questions that you have to think about and tailoring to a particular company. I think just in general, having two or three questions that you're ready to ask at the end of an interview, when there's five minutes left, typically is when they turn it to you and say, okay, do you have any questions for me? That's like your closer, right? It's an opportunity for you to really stand out. So just having a few in your pocket doesn't have to be five or seven or 10, just has to be a few. Absolutely. And the right ones. Yeah. So you have a course that you developed last year, the Da Vinci Career Coach, I believe it's called. And it's all about what people can learn from the world's great artists in terms of their job search. So help bring that to life. You don't have to obviously teach the whole course here, but give us a sense, pick an artist and talk about what we can learn from that artist in terms of our career searches. So I'm a huge art history buff. Okay. Love, especially the impressionists. And even though he's not an impressionist, but he's my favorite artist, that's Pablo Picasso. And what many people don't know about him is that he was really very business oriented. And he has a very famous quote that he says, and I'll just summarize it, that you will not get anywhere. You will not meet success in your life if you do not have a plan. If you have a plan, you could achieve anything. He was also an artist that knew his purpose to the very end. And I found inspiration in that. And that was really the foundation for the entire course, because I feel that artists are the most resilient people on earth. They will starve. They will barter for their supplies. They will do anything just so that they could create the space to do what they love. And I think that we need to learn from that community. Yeah. A lot of courage to be an artist. And scrappiness goes back to what you were talking about earlier with the people who move into franchisee roles and that realization that they have for people who are really, to your point, passionate about how they want to spend their time, have a very clear sense of it and are artistic in their bent. They're going to do what it takes to continue to produce art one way or another. Exactly. And people are fascinated with artists. They're uh, kind of admirable, sexy figures in history. And I thought that if I put this course together, which was my passion project during the pandemic, that people will look at it as infotainment. They will be entertained and they will learn something at the same time. You rolled it out, I think, late last year. So how has it gone so far? It's going terrific. I mean, it's really, people can't believe how I, the creativity that I use to really merge art history and recruiting and job search. Yeah, I was invited to have the course appear on Knowable, which is a huge uh, learning platform, which is now owned by Medium. The course is selling there. Many people are exposed to my coaching and my methodology that way. I'm an adjunct professor at Fairleigh Dickinson University. So I'm talking to the university about including this course in the curriculum so that sophomores can be exposed to content that could be thought-provoking. I mean, I teach a class called Professional Life. It's kind of boring for a 19-year-old to sit there and learn how to put a resume together. But if they see how Andy Warhol did it, 
then they're going to look at it completely differently. Yeah. And you can find some very good business examples of business people in the artistic world, not just artists who paint or sculpt, but I mean, think about George Clooney started a tequila company. Ryan Reynolds, I think, is doing gin. So you've got all sorts of different things. So Jessica Alba's a billionaire, right? right? Based on what she's done outside of her acting career. So there are probably now more than ever. And athletes too have learned how to become much better business people. And so you've got these, back to your point about trying to make it interesting for a 19-year-old, whether it's sports or movies or the art world, you know, you've got lots of examples of people that have really shown a business savvy outside of their artistic or professional athlete endeavors. Yeah. I truly feel that if part of our education, especially during high school or early college, someone asked us, what makes you happy? And we were able to start developing an answer to that instead of, I just need a good job after I graduate school. If someone took the time to ask this question, I feel we would have many more fulfilled and satisfied professionals, which would lead to better quality of work that they would give to their employers. It would improve their work ethic. It would improve employee retention and a whole lot of other stuff, probably even lawsuits, to be honest with you. So because people would be happy doing the work that they're doing versus doing it because they need to collect the paycheck. I definitely sense, and I'm going to use Myers-Briggs as an example. So my kids, I think, learned Myers-Briggs in high school. They learned the language of Myers-Briggs, and I think it made them, allowed them to better understand themselves and better understand other people. I learned Myers-Briggs when I was like 28 or 29 years old, and that's a lot longer after being in high school. And I think the kids who are going through school today definitely are picking up a lot more around psychology and mental health, but maybe going one step further, as you suggest about what makes you happy and just getting them to start answering that question so they can think about what they really want to do with that lens, as opposed to just, I'm going to do what my parents want me to do, or I'm going to do what my buddies are doing or whatever the case may be. Absolutely. So you have a lot of other side things going on as well. So talk about some of the things that you do outside of your coaching business and your course that you created. So as I mentioned, I am an adjunct professor and I find that very rewarding because I get to influence young people who are in the very beginnings of their professional lives. And I really, really enjoy that. I enjoy travel. I enjoy hiking. I really enjoy art. And I'm hoping that I could incorporate my love for art more and more into my work. Yeah. So where are your favorite places to travel? South of France. Yeah. Not a bad place. Yeah. (laughs) Very specific. Do you have a place that you go back to regularly or do you just hit different points along the southern coast or I guess inland southern France? Some places that I go back to over and over again because I have friends in the area, but I really enjoy Provence Mm. and the lighting there and the landscape and nature. And there's just the serenity. I feel like there is a special chemistry between me and that place. Yeah. That's good that you have a place that you feel that emotional bond with. It's a good way when you go to that place to be able to kind of recharge. Yes, absolutely. How about hiking? Where are your favorite places to hike? Well, I live in North Jersey. So we have a slew of hiking trails along, like right under the George Washington Bridge and along the Palisades, Bear Mountain, Mm. even hiking up in Cold Springs and that whole area, the Hudson Valley. Yeah. Amazing places. Yeah. I've done a lot of hiking 
a lot of different places. My sort of home base is the White Mountains up in New Hampshire. It's closest to Boston, which is where we have our permanent home. And I've been up there many times. So love getting out. What other things do you do? I think you mentioned Instagram earlier. So talk about, you've got, I don't know, some coming up on like 50,000 followers, which is a pretty darn big Instagram following. So what kinds of things do you post about on Instagram? And how do you think about that in the context of portfolio of things you're doing? Um, very early on, when I started Instagram, the following started from people reading the book or different places of the world. Mm. So that was the beginning. And then I felt that I have to give content to my followers, teaching them the five tips for the best resume or the five tips how to be a rock star at your interview. But I felt that it was a little forced. They really didn't feel who I was and my style and how I am different from some of the other coaches. And that's Mm. where I made a decision around six months ago to really bring in my followers into my world, what Mm. I enjoy doing at my spare time. Not so much with family and friends, but really my own personal journey. I think it's very important. The audience on Instagram is younger. Yeah. And I feel that if they can learn from what I've been able to achieve and how I did it, it will really serve them well. And every post that I put up, I really try to bring them into my world, the world of fulfillment, professional happiness. I'm always raving on how much I love being a New Yorker, how I've been able to really form this work-life balance really building my business during the pandemic and all the things that I have access to in New York. But my followers are international. They all have access to cultural things in their areas. I volunteer. I recently got involved with a organization that finds basic items for people who are displaced in Ukraine because of Mm. the political situation there and the war. So I'm of Ukrainian heritage. So that was so important to me. And I'm constantly building awareness for this small nonprofit from my art circles. Like yesterday, for example, I attended a private opening at the Brooklyn Museum and Mm -hmm. the group had a few people that I started talking to. And I met somebody that's a sock manufacturer that is willing to donate socks to this charity. Awesome. So it's all about the connections. It's all about networking. It's all about showing up authentically, doing the things that you love, and then things come together. Yeah. You mentioned coming together. Do you feel like at this point in your life that all of this really is coming together for you and you kind of know who you are and what fulfills you and what you want to be doing professionally? I know I'm in the right place. I know I was destined to do this. I know that everything I did up until this point, it was to prepare me for this point. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't want to be arrogant. I know that I still have so much more to learn. So what are the things that you're focused on learning right now? What's on your learning agenda? I need to learn how to market my assets better. I feel that my course that I have now and future courses that I'm thinking about developing under this brand of DaVinci Career Coach I need to figure out a way to bring it to more people and not just kind of market it on LinkedIn or through the events that I'm hosting. I need to figure that out. And it's actually at a point of frustration for me that I haven't been able to figure it out yet. But I also know that everything is time. My clients who need me 
while they're in their career transition, they need me. So they need my hours and they need to schedule a session. So how can I say no to them because I need to market my course? Yeah. So I'm constantly in those two spaces, constantly challenged. Yeah. One of the things I've thought about with my side business, this Pathwise Venture, is how to help coaches expand their reach, right? To find a different form of scalability than you can find when you're running a sole proprietorship coaching practice where every dollar you bring in depends on you and your time. What you did developing your course is certainly one way. You wrote a book. That's another way. So in the scheme of things, you've already taken a few pretty substantial steps to help you. I think it's my hope is at some point I'm more focused on the individuals right now than on creating a platform for coaches. But that was always in the longer term idea. But I think you've got a running start at it already with the things you've been doing. Thank you. Thank you. I also do a bit of mentor coaching, especially through ICF. They encourage that. Yeah. So I'm always willing to share with the coaching community the lessons I've learned, the mistakes that I made to help other coaches not to make those mistakes because those mistakes can be expensive. Getting into coaching and doing a certification program, I mean, it's not an enormous expense, but it's somewhere between a few thousand dollars and $10,000, I guess, depending on what you decide to do. And then you did ICF. I mean, what do you need? Like 200 hours, I think, of coaching to get the first certification. Yes, and, you... and then 500 hours, 500 paid hours. Yeah, that's a lot of coaching, a yep. lot of coaching just to get your certification. So it's a big investment of your own time, if not necessarily money. And yes. if you don't go about that in the right way, you can easily flail. I'm sure that's what happens with a lot of people, which is obviously unfortunate. Yes, we need more coaches. I feel that if we have more coaches, we're going to solve some problems as a society. Yeah, I wonder whether the world of coaching right now is by and large for the most senior people, right? Because for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part, it's the companies who are paying. They're only going to pay for their top performers, their most senior people. But everybody can use some coaching from the time you finish school, right? I mean, it could be very basic stuff, but back to your point about teaching people how to write a resume. I mean, at some points in your life, you actually have to learn how to do those things. And it's funny, you know, people will go to the gym, they'll get a trainer, they'll bring help in and so many other aspects of their life. And yet they spend more waking hours at work than doing just about anything else. And yet they kind of are not necessarily all that intentional about how they go about managing their career. It doesn't mean you have to be overly careerist, but just getting advice along the way and not just having to learn everything the hard way. Yeah. I love that word intentional. And I have a very famous quote that I actually started using. I often ask my clients, do you want the job search happening to you or do you want to happen to the job search? Yeah. It's a very simple way of explaining it, but yeah, that's a great question. Any other final thoughts you want to share in terms of career guidance or other thoughts for our audience? Yeah, I'd like to share another quote. I love quotes. I'm a very big quote person. A resume is just a piece of paper if you don't have a strategy. Also very well said. Thank you. All right. Well, Michelle, thanks for doing this. I'm glad uh, you reached out and offered to be a podcast guinea pig. So I appreciate your time and have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much. Nice to see you. Yeah, you too. I'd like to thank Michelle for joining me today and sharing her broad career journey and learnings along the way. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, become a Pathwise member. It's free. 
You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter, follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.